welcome to the Data Bytes podcast. I am so happy to be chatting with you because it feels like we met ages ago, but it was just last year at a conference. And the second I met you, I was just like, love the energy, love what you're doing at Salesforce. I need to know more. And so I selfishly invite people on a podcast. So I have some time to talk to them. So thank you for making this time to talk with us today, share your story and share your knowledge with Thank you so much for having me. And I do remember that meeting and I have been excited to have this conversation. There have been some tumultuous times since we met, um, but now I think is a really great time to connect about the work that I'm doing at Salesforce and how it applies to your lovely ecosystem. So we'd love to just dive in and know, like, how did you get into the position that you are today as the VP of Research and Insights? Um, Because that is not an easy journey. And I actually started my career as a research analyst. Fortunately, I didn't stay with it and switched over to other endeavors. But for you, what was that? What did that? So my journey as a researcher actually started years before um, doing research at Salesforce. So I'll try to give an abbreviated version. Um, I was a graduate at the University of Illinois um, in Champaign-Urbana, and I focused my studies on rhetoric, short story narrative, and Spanish. So basically what I was really good at is persuasive storytelling. And so any good researcher knows that that is the foundation of great research, which is you're able to tell a great story where you're motivating people to have some sort of reaction to your story. Um, But surprise, with an undergraduate degree in rhetoric, I wasn't able to find any actually well-paying jobs. (laughs) And so I had to really think deeply about what my next was going to be. And that took about seven years of experimentation working at many different companies um, where I was a temp in a lot of instances. And I got to work with a lot of terrible, terrible technology. It was like early aughts, um, right, 1999 to 2003. Um, So it became evident to me that there was an opportunity to help create better technology. Because all the technologies that I was using to serve like as a paralegal or as an order management rep or as like a business analyst, um, pretty much uh, didn't really think about the human experience, but definitely thought about the technology experience. And so I happened to embark upon this uh, program at DePaul University, Human Computer Interaction, which afforded me the opportunity to actually like expand the concept of, oh, look, I can use my rhetoric degree for something a little bit bigger than just great compelling stories, but also like weaving in the technological needs. Um, And so after I pursued and got my master's um, degree in human computer interaction, I was actually able to apply it almost immediately. So I worked at Deloitte um, as a, um, their very first user experience um, analyst, where I helped to run their global services um, team and the, the, um, the, focus that I had there was actually to um, create one cohesive experience with their internet and, and, and intranet. And then I got poached by Capgemini and was able to do very similar work, but at scale for OEMs, um, uh, large uh, manufacturers and um, large tech companies where we were building products from soup to nuts. Um, so design to build. And my focus and where I always had the most fun was actually in the uh, discovery and design phase, which is research. Um, after doing that for a bit, 
I ended up at Salesforce. And I started my journey at Salesforce as a researcher. Um, whilst I had worn every single hat before, I, it became really evident that um, research was underserved. Like people would build products and then research later, or they would um, cut research out of a uh, product development life cycle because they didn't have t- enough time or enough uh, money or enough uh, resources, like all of the reasons. Um, and I felt that it was imperative to be able to focus on creating space and driving the value of research. And that's what I've been doing at Salesforce since I've started 12 years ago. <laughs> and I've, com- I've committed my time to that because it is, um, it's a constantly evolving field, right? Like research is, is bigger than a bread box now. Like it, when, when we talked about research back in the Wayback Machine, it was like, okay, well, you're just doing usability or you're just doing interviews. And now it's, you know, data analytics, it's data science, it's, um, it's explorations of, of, of experiences in AI. You know, it, the world is your oyster. And uh, you get to use what I consider like my favorite skill, which is the art of curiosity to create awesome experiences. So that's a little bit of my journey of becoming a researcher. And um, my 12 years at Salesforce, I basically created different paths and shapes of what research looks like. Um, became a mixed methods researcher and then started leading a team. Um, And now I lead uh, the platform, C360 platform team, which is comprised of all of our admin tools, developer tools, mobile experience, AI, data clouds, um, you name it. It's used to build products. My team is doing research on it. I'm so excited about this because I feel like research has come a long way since I was in the field 10, 12 years ago. So for our listeners who are like resonating with, you know, this curiosity and actionable insight, can you tell us a little bit more about what like a mixed methods research looks like? What are those methods that you use? Depending on the researcher and the actual need of of, of our customer, quote unquote, I'm using like big air quotes, you can't see it, um, is... Mixed methods is a, a healthy mix of qualitative and quantitative research, in my opinion. I also include mixed methods um, um, in the, the sort of bucket of mixed methods. Sorry, a little bit of stuffiness. Um, workshops, you know, um, novel ways of collecting feedback, in-app feedback, um, telemetry, data analysis potentially even even creating our own data sets to inform models that we are then taking action on. So opening up the aperture of what it looks like to be a researcher so that it's not just like limited to this concept of I'm a researcher and I'm using qual and quant methods to produce insights. It's also I'm a researcher that creates insights, but I'm also um, embedded with this product um, team and the product development lifecycle and I'm accountable for those insights so that I can take those insights and weave them into the very fabric of the product that we're building. And so that I can celebrate in conjunction with my team because I'm part of that sort of like uh, thought leadership and the development um, and the execution and deployment of this product. Uh, so mixed methods, is, I see also as an extension of being sort of full life cycle researchers. Right. So you're a researcher that's deploying your skill set from the spark of an idea 
all the way to continuous improvement and um, discovery of new products because your product is in market. So I love the word you use accountability there because one, I think it helps us end up having so much more purpose in our job, right? Instead of just like, Hey, I'm going to provide these insights and recommendations, but rather being accountable for the full product release and seeing how it goes in the market and testing and, you know, testing your results after like, to me, that just gives so much more purpose in the work that you're doing. And I'm curious, like, is the accountability something that you came up with and drive on your team? Because I haven't heard people use that word, particularly in regards to research. It's more like research is here. And again, for those listening, I'm pointing to one side, right? Research is here and they're off on their own and they do their thing and they say their stuff and then there's the product development. But this accountability feels like it really integrates the two together. I don't know if I came up with it on my own, but I do feel very, uh, I think maybe it's sort of an outer maybe it's an artifact of the way that I was trained within the the program at DePaul, but it's also a little bit of the artifact of like, that's why I came to industry. Like when I was in, um, when I was in the consulting world, I didn't have the luxury of actually being able to live um, through the life cycle of a product because oftentimes you were in a position where you were doing the work and then the work got handed over. And it wasn't as fulfilling to your point. So when I moved into industry, what was critically important to me was be able to feel like I was building a product with and for others. And so in order to do so, I had to feel compelled and um, have some sort of ownership of these, of these insights so much so that like I wanted to be able to co-create next steps with my team. So then we were jointly accountable um, and that I think there's a little bit of like um, sort of the organizational design associated with it. There's a little bit of uh, like leveraging the behaviors of humans when we engage and we team. Like when everyone's got skin in the game, we perform better. And when you're just a shared service that's handing insights over the top of the, you know, whatever the, the shelf or just handing it over, handing the baton over, um, you're not, you're not a part of the solution. And so then you can be considered um, externalized to the core group. And we all want to be a part of a group. That's a human nature to a certain green out. Like even if you're an introvert, like you still want to be a part of a group. You just may not be extroverted in that group. Um, so, so there, Inherent to the way that I think I show up in in corporate America is, I think, a little bit of the driver of how I see um, applied insights being so critical to the success of a product. In addition to the fact that I love building product. So, like, I want to play in that playground. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to just sit on the outskirts and be like, well, I have some insights. No, that's not. That's not fun to me. <laughs> and, and, and insights evolve. They evolve with discussion. They, they evolve with exploration. And so I, ideally, the person who's been the, the author of the insights, the one who's done, who's done all of the work to, uh, to kind of shepherd that insight, should also be able to do so uh, for the life of it and as it continues to evolve over the life of a product. 
my two cents. So for people who maybe are working in research roles today and they feel like they're on the other side of the fence, right, where they're just like handing over the insights and not involved, but maybe they're relating to being like you and like, I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of the solution. How how can you become part of the solution, right? Instead of just like advising people to like be in it. Do you have any advice for individuals in that space? Definitely. I think that there are some tools that you can use. Now, granted, um, it's dependent upon the um, the timelines that you're on, right? And the interest of the teams that you're helping to um, help groom and ship a product. Uh, but the first tool that I usually use is to do some sort of solutions um, activity after you've presented your insights or with the presentation of your insights. So your insights, um, oftentimes I've seen insights where they're just like, okay, this thing is, uh, this is a fact. Thank you so much for that fact. Now that we've done this research, we've identified a fact. Or we had a hypothesis and we debunked, the, we debunked this hypothesis. Cool. The first step is actually to be bold enough to say there are recommendations that come out of this hypothesis and I'm the author of those recommendations. And by the way, if you don't agree with these recommendations, let's have this thing called a how might we exercise or a solutions design exercise or an art of the possible exercise where we can take all of these insights and we will all come up with some great recommendations and then put them on a two by two for feasibility and cost and then determine as a group what we want to invest in as a next step. And that for me is sort of the easiest way to get into the conversation around creating action against your insights. Um, and because it creates cohesion, you're doing this with a cross-functional team, you're doing it with the people that you're presenting these insights to. And truly, everybody wants to go, go to solutioning once you present your insights. So why not do that with art and craft? And that's why you can weave out some sort of like activity and engagement uh, methodology with your stakeholders. And then that helps sort of train um, your team towards this construct of insights being alive and not shelfware, right? So that's one thing you can do. The other thing that I've seen that works pretty well is holding your team accountable by like doing two things. The first one is in your kickoff for research, actually having some sort of accountability framework where you're literally telling the team, hey, we're going to do this research. It's expensive. My time's expensive, our customers' time is, is, is expensive, and your time is expensive. So if we do this research, we all have to commit to the fact that we're going to take action on the insights. And I can help you with that. And I think that the help is what really creates a sense of like trust and engagement and mutual care that can drive forward sort of this bringing researchers to the table, so to speak, so that they're a part of that ecosystem. Um, so those are two tips in, in which, um, which I deploy on a regular basis. Traceability matrices sometimes work, right? Where you have like, oh, here are the insights, here's a list. And like, here, I'm assigning them to people because they have to act against them. Um, but that ends up creating sort of this, I say you do, um, frame of engagement and it's less collaborative. So Anything that creates a space for co-creation and mutual and like mutual beneficial discussion is um, I've seen consistently reap the most benefit with respect to like creating action from insights. Yeah, both are those are really solid recommendations, especially in regards to when you're 
doing research or even I see for a lot of data scientists who are sharing their insights, it can come if you're a new data scientist, it comes often as here's the data, here's the facts, right? And then those recommendations of their skin in the game is often missed. And when it takes confidence to be able to like put that out there, right? To say, and you have to, and it, and it requires knowing enough about the business to correlate between what you were digging into in the data to then also relating it back to the business. But that's really where the magic happens. And I love your comments on space and co-creation because, you know, when you're talking about setting the intent and having individuals know like, Hey, this is costly, but I'm here to help you. And I'm going to be with you along the journey. It just reminds me a lot of like yoga classes when we come in and be like, Hey, let's all set our intent together. Right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> totally. Totally. And I, I love what you just mentioned about the business, honestly, like a bit of, a bit of that experiences when you are doing this work, it has to be tethered back to the business because then, then the impact is, is, is doubled, if not, you know, quadrupled because you can say, well, we did, we have this insight. What value does it provide? Well, if the recommendations and the output, when you're doing your feasibility matrix on whatever it is that you've decided that the possible impact or solutions for this insight might be, that it's measured on that. Like, okay, the business wants to increase, increase margins. Cool. This is going to help with that. Or it's going to decrease uh, attrition, increase adoption. Like there should be a shared understanding of what are the variables that we're marching towards as a team and using that language as a, as a researcher, any type of analyst always is a slam dunk because you're speaking the language of the people in the, in the environment in which you are serving. And so that kind of goes all the way back to like, okay, back in the way back machine when I was a writer and I was short story narrative writer, like you always have to know who your audience is because you're telling a story. And your story is, the, is, is based on insights and data, but the audience needs to resonate with that. And so leveraging those, the, like the skills of storytelling, in addition to like delivering those insights is a, is, is a whammy, like a big, it will knock it out of the park, in my opinion. Now, I'm so glad you came back to persuasive storytelling, because when you mentioned that, I was like, oh my gosh, you were so lucky to study that in college. I mean, probably at the time when you graduated, you didn't feel that way, right? It was like, how do I apply this? But I mean, in the world of data, that's what we all talk about is like, how do we transform this data and this information and the wealth of information into a story, right? And you're talking about not even just a story, but a persuasive story. So anything that you can pull from that time in college and what you're using today, like how do we craft persuasive stories? Because to me, like, as AI becomes more of a part of our lives, that's what makes us human is to tell stories and to tell stories that resonate with others. So what any tips on persuasive storytelling? For sure. I mean, there's, there is the, 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 that's not a trope, but it's sort of like everybody who studied writing and literature knows about the hero's journey, right? Or the story arc, you've got a journey, you're supposed to achieve something. And then there's the trough of despair. Everything is terrible. And then, oh, but wait, there is a there is a moment when when you can succeed, we can all succeed together, and then the story ends. Right? That is so effective <laughs> with everything. Oftentimes, researchers, insights leaders, people who are creating um, some sort of wanted, wanting to establish some sort of change with the data that they've curated, um, that we're afraid to tell the bad, the bad, sad story, right? Um, because sometimes. 
then we're, we're like chicken little. We're always doom and gloom. And uh, they're going to tell us to stop building the X, Y, and Z. Right. <laughs> um, I think that leveraging the hero's journey as a, as a, as a storytelling narrative and, and even in any deck and any presentation. So we did this research and we found these terrible things, but wait, there's a solution. <laughs> and these are, this is the path, right? And this is what we can do to secure our future collectively together. Huzzah! <laughs> right. And, um, it is extraordinarily manipulative. <laughs> I, will, I will just put that out there. <clears throat> Persuasive writing is exactly that. Um, but hopefully you, the work that you're doing is bound in values that you're bringing to the table, right? And shared values within your team so that you're not, you're not capitalizing too much on like weaponizing empathy for whomever the users might be, et cetera. You're actually doing it on behalf of really trying to... Um, make people excited about this change more than anything else, right? Because um, that's what we are effectively as, as data shepherds. We're uh, change agents. Um, what my provocation is to everyone who's in this field is like, let's own that, right? You can be a, you can be a data gatherer, but if you're a shepherd, know the great power that you have to be able to translate those insights into action. And to really, truly change the trajectory of the products that you are working on and potentially the minds and the hearts of the people with whom you're working. Yeah, if that doesn't get you excited about data and working with data, I, I don't know what will. Like, I mean, to me, there's no other greater like calling than like shepherding people and being a change agent. And we have so much opportunity for change in our world today. I mean, it doesn't take long to look around and, and see a problem and attach that problem. And given that there's a problem, there's probably data with it. And you can shape that story and have that narrative to encourage people to join along and, and lead that change. So I'm excited about it. this. Just makes me want to go tell some more stories. So thank you for that. And the classic reminder, I know we all hear about the hero's journey, but I mean, I don't think we can be reminded of it enough. Just like how much we go through it in our own daily lives, but also how much we all can attach to it. So thank you for that. In addition to all of your amazing work at Salesforce, you also do a lot of outside work as well. So I know you work with a couple of organizations, um, Trillion Trees Tracking, um, Generations AI with the World Economic Forum. Can you tell us a little bit more about this work, what called you to it, and what you're doing with some of those organizations? I'll tell you a little bit about what called me to it first. So uh, in both of those organizations and those initiatives, I came into that work with the hat of research and insights first. Because I found and I felt that there is an opportunity to weave um, the value that um, deep um, curiosity can bring into these forums. And so um, in both cases, these were opportunities that were brought to my attention through Salesforce. Um, with the World Economic Forum at Forums Generation AI program, that was actually a uh, sustainable development goal that Salesforce was committed to last year. Um, 
still is committed to, but the focus can, um, continues to like um, amp- become amplified and adding more and more SDG goals. Um, but in any case, we had a specific initiative to be able to create a, um, a very clear set of guidelines for product teams to be able to take and use to build um, experiences that leveraged AI that would be used by children. That's the best way to describe it. And so um, we leveraged uh, the traditional research methodology to be able to identify what might be the best way to approach this. Because oftentimes a lot of these policies are actually built with like a quorum of specialists and experts that sit down, (coughs) co-create, excuse me, co-create some sort of suite of policies, procedures, um, checklists, et cetera, and then they're produced and, and shipped out to the world. We thought it was incumbent upon us as product leaders to weave in the same methodological rigor that we would for any product to treat the sort of set of guidelines that we build in the same possible way. So the outcome, the product here, were the guidelines. So we did interviews, we did surveys, we were able to co-create um, the suite of, guide, of guidelines for Generations AI, and it, it wound up creating sort of like a series of tear sheets for different cohorts. So we had the uh, sort of C-suite cohort and the individuals who are actually making the product, so any kind of builder, and then also for the youth, because we wanted to be inclusive of the youth if they are going to be impacted by these um, policies and recommendations and guidelines. Um, My favorite part about it is that we came up with an awesome acronym, which is called It's FIRST, which is FAIR, Inclusive, Responsible, Safe, and Transparent. And those are effectively the design guidelines for uh, Generations AI um, products, so to speak. And then with the the Trillion Trees, Plant for the Planet, um, and Tree Tracker engagement, it actually stemmed from a pro bono initiative that I was running. Um, So I, I was... Appointed at um, Plant for the Planet, which is led by Felix Finfeiner, um, this amazing activist out of Germany, uh, who has created a youth movement around sustainability and climate crisis um, with a focus on forestry and planting trees. Um, so we, he built um, a fairly robust tree tracking application and wanted to be able to scale it. So he wanted to leverage Salesforce product and tools to do so. My responsibility was to ensure that that transition onto the Salesforce platform was seamless and that he was able to scale um, his work um, effectively, this application, so it could be used by hundreds of thousands of people simultaneously with the launch of DeVos. I think that was 2019. Um, It was a successful launch. The, The product was tested. It was, it had personas. It had had usability testing against it because I was involved, of course, um, and, and it uh, continues to have engagement from my team. So that's one of those, um, once you engage in, in a relationship with these pro bono initiatives, you can, you at Salesforce have the opportunity to, conti- to, to sort of maintain and groom it however you see fit. I have a personal commitment to Plant for the Planet to ensure their continual success on our platform. In addition to the fact that they continue to grow their offerings as a green tech company. Um, and so everybody benefits because they're not for profit and it's open source. Um, so that's sort of my journey with that. What we ended up doing at Salesforce is we actually co-created a white labelable platform to track trees and our attempt, <clears throat> excuse me, to get to the point where we have 45 million trees tracked. And we're looking to hit that goal by this April. So 
that's the that's the intent. <laughs> All we need are more contributions <laughs> because with every donation we plant trees. So feel free to come to salesforce.com slash trees and donate some trees. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. I actually moved to Sacramento because I it was labeled the city of trees. And I was like, I love trees. So I want to move to a city that has lots of trees. So definitely go to, to what's the website again? Salesforce.com slash trees. Is that what it is? Slash trees. Okay. I got to go check this out and get some more trees planted. <laughs> and I think we have Earth Day coming up here soon. So maybe that will be like a perfect timing. We'll have to launch this episode on Earth Day so everybody can go plant a tree for Earth Day. That's incredible. Um, I love that. One of the things that resonates a lot just talking with you is you seem to be a very conscientious leader. And you know, not everyone has like this persona to them of just like a very thoughtful and the words you use and creating space and collaboration and curiosity would you, how would you define your leadership style? It, to me, it seems very conscientious, but you know, wh- what's been your journey to finding your leadership style and how would you define it? Thank you for the question. And um, my journey to finding my leadership style has been a lot of coaching, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of, um, a lot of failures right, where, where I might not have been the best leader, but I, I got feedback. And I was listening, I was willing to listen and learn. Um, but I think now I've been able to, with um, the time that I've had in these spaces and places and with the, um, with the support that I've gotten from Salesforce in particular, because it's such a values-led company, um, to really understand what my core values are and to, to try to, to lead by example through those values. And so I would call myself a values-led leader. I would call myself a compassionate and uh, servant uh, leadership um, focused individual. Um, my my value, my my core driver is to create places of safety and belonging. And so for me, all of the work that I do is in service of doing that for my team so that they feel like they are amplified that they are heard, um, that they have agency, um, and that they can have the best career of their lives with me as a leader. That's my intent, um, to get out of the way so that they can grow more than anything else. Um, And I do that because I haven't had a lot of leaders like that in my life. And so I feel very strongly that for for management to change, there have to be more people who represent the type of leadership they want to see manifested in management. And so I try my darndest to do that on a regular basis. And I, sometimes I misstep, um, but I love it that my team holds me accountable. Yes, I think that is all we can ask for, right? Is, uh, you know, I'm a, such a big Brene Brown fan and I love her quotes about like being in the arena or being on the dance floor versus being you know in the audience and so often like I know I make mistakes all the time but I'm like hey I'm on the dance floor right (laughs) I'm, I'm trying I'm striving and coming back to having that support system and that sense of belonging like they're 
we need more of that in the world. So thank you for embodying that and living it every day and striving towards that because it gives me hope for what our future looks like and what the next generations looks like. Thank you. That's the best gift ever. So before we wrap up today, we do like to have a little fun and go through some rapid fire questions. So if you're okay, are you ready to do some rapid fire questions? Totally. Let's do it. Okay. What song do you currently have on repeat? I don't have a song. What I have is a um, is an is an album stream, Sampa the Great. And like anything that comes up, I'm all over it. So like Suku's music has been my jam. Love it. Favorite place you've traveled? Roatan. I learned how to scuba dive. <gasps> Fun. That's on my list. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Happiness is? Curiosity. In the next five years, I hope to? Actually learn how to play my cello and get some amazing guns. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To strong women. To strong women. Exactly. <laughs> that is the plan. And last, last question. To me, curiosity is? Well, I could cop out and say happiness, but curiosity is the, the fabric of success. Well, Kai, thank you so much for taking the time to share this space with us today and share your experiences and journey and learnings along the way. I know I've been inspired by this conversation in so many ways, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. I had an excellent time. And until next time. Sounds good. And thanks to all of our listeners. Remember to stay curious and keep learning. And we'll catch you next time on the Data Bytes podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Data Bytes podcast. If you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.